Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Program Treatment Update on Mantle Cell Lymphoma. And our today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations as well as blood cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the topic today that we have on the program today, over 487 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, so all different parts of the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, Ireland, India, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So really um, from really all different parts of, the, um, of, this, of this world, of the global, global world that we live in. And today's program is supported by Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is, is Dr. Chris Patel. Um, and uh, Dr. Patel is, uh, is with the Center for Blood Disorders and Stem Cell Transplantation, Swedish Cancer Institute. And Dr. Patel is going to be addressing overview of mantle cell lymphoma, treatment options for newly diagnosed, and communicating with the healthcare team about emerging treatment options. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Patel. Well, thank you, Carolyn, and, and uh, thank you all for, for having me today. It's my pleasure to speak to you. Um, so I will give you, as Carolyn mentioned, an overview uh, of the disease of mantle cell lymphoma and talk about um, primarily first-line treatments. Um, so as many of you are familiar with, um, mantle cell lymphoma is a form of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. It's classified as a B-cell lymphoma of a particular uh, immune cell called a B-lymphocyte. And in total, mantle cell lymphoma makes up somewhere around about 5% of all non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So while it is a relatively smaller um, group of lymphomas in the non-Hodgkin lymphoma group, uh, it is an important one. It's generally classified as an aggressive lymphoma. And the presentation of this disease can be quite varied. Um, Often patients may be diagnosed with symptoms due to its aggressive nature. For example, that can include symptoms like generalized fatigue, unintended weight loss, night sweats of the kind where patients might soak through their clothes or their bed sheets, um, or can sometimes manifest as enlargement of lymph nodes or uh, masses that the patient may feel themselves. And occasionally, mantle cell lymphoma may be diagnosed in patients without symptoms. Uh, by virtue of uh, finding abnormalities in their blood counts, for example, their red blood cell count, their total white blood cell count, or their platelet counts. And so the disease can manifest in a variety of ways. To make the diagnosis of mantle cell lymphoma, we uh, need to distinguish um, the, uh, the abnormal um, tissue from uh, other types of lymphoma, and this can be done in a variety of ways depending on how the patient presents. Often this can include blood tests, uh, including tests called uh, peripheral blood flow cytometry if there are abnormal white blood cells in the blood. may include a biopsy of a lymph node, and often if that is the case, it is our 
uh, preference to try to get as much tissue from the lymph node as possible so we can um, make sure that the diagnosis of mantle cell lymphoma is arrived at correctly. Um, occasionally, it can be diagnosed um, by virtue of endoscopic procedures. For example, some patients with mantle cell lymphoma may present with uh, symptoms related to the bowel, and so um, that can also be a, a way that the disease is diagnosed through procedures like upper endoscopy or colonoscopy. When we're thinking about the diagnosis of mantle cell lymphoma, uh, what I think primarily helps to distinguish that form of non-Hodgkin lymphoma from others is that most patients with mantle cell lymphoma have uh, the, presen the presence of a specific um, abnormality in the chromosomes of the cancer cells specifically called a translocation. That translocation is commonly referred to as uh, the 1114 translocation. And what that translocation um, results in in the cancer cells themselves is an increase in the expression of a protein called cyclin D1 that plays an important role in the uh, cell cycle uh, of growth and um, proliferation of a cell. And so that, that specific genetic feature is highly present in cases of mantle cell lymphoma and often can be used um, to confirm that diagnosis. Now, there are small numbers of patients where that genetic abnormality may not be present, and there are additional um, features uh, that can be used to distinguish mantle cell lymphoma from other non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, including the presence of certain other uh, gene mutations, as well as um, that there are specific uh, patterns of proteins expressed on the outside of the cancer cells that fit with uh, uh, what we call a phenotype for the cancer cell. After the diagnosis is made, uh, patients will often undergo staging. So the uh, purpose of staging is to help define the extent of involvement of the mantle cell lymphoma. Being a lymphoma, a cancer of uh, immune white blood cells, um, the disease can be present in a variety of places at diagnosis. We commonly think of those being uh, possibly lymph nodes, the bone marrow, where uh, blood cells are made, and as I mentioned previously, often can also include the gastrointestinal tract, uh, which has populations of uh, immune cells uh, along, along its path. So staging involves a number of uh, different um, procedures. It includes a physical exam to assess for any enlarged lymph nodes, potentially enlargement of the spleen, which is also an immune organ that can be involved by the disease. It may include a bone marrow biopsy to assess whether the mantle cell lymphoma is present in the blood-making factory, the bone marrow. It will often include imaging, should include imaging, which can incorporate CT scanning and or uh, PET scanning to look for metabolic activity that might indicate the presence of the mantle cell lymphoma. And in patients who are having symptoms of gastrointestinal problems, for example, things like diarrhea, it may also include endoscopy uh, to look for involvement of the mantle cell in the lining of the bowels. After we collect that staging information, that information helps to delineate the extent of disease, and that information can also be helpful in trying to assess the risk of the mantle cell lymphoma. So mantle cell lymphoma is a disease that, um, while generally considered aggressive, can have a variety of different clinical courses. 
And so it's important that when we start to think about how to approach the management of this disease in patients that we have as best we can the best kind of estimate of, of what the risk of that disease looks like in an individual patient. There are a variety of ways we might think about doing this. Probably the most commonly thought of is the use of a prognostic score called the MIPI score. There are a couple different flavors of this score, but they all largely incorporate factors that include patient-specific factors like their age, their um, general what we call performance status, so that means their ability to participate in uh, normal daily activities, and some markers that are specific to the disease, including the total white blood cell count and a blood marker called a lactate dehydrogenase. All of these factors can be put into a formula to help assess a MIPI score to provide some sense of what the patient's risk might be with that disease. There are additional um, attempts and, and work ongoing to further refine our ability to estimate the risk of the disease, which includes the incorporation of things like specific genetic mutations that may be present in the cancer cells, and we await further validation of these kinds of approaches to, to better inform us of, of how best to uh, estimate risk. A few other things I think that are important to note that provide some important information about the risk of the disease, of mental cell disease in a given patient, include uh, a measure of the proliferative activity of the cancer cells um, called the KI-67. So this is a marker of how actively the cancer cells are dividing. And this is important because we know that while many patients with mantle cell lymphoma may have an aggressive disease course, there is importantly a subset of patients that can have uh, a so-called indolent disease course, meaning that they can have relatively slow progression be asymptomatic with the disease, and it's important to pick these patients out from the general crowd because their initial approach uh, may be quite different. And so the KI-67 is a measure that helps us to look at this in patients with low KI-67s um, with relatively um, isolated disease to the blood and the spleen without a lot of lymph node masses may have a more indolent course initially. So after we've collected all this information and tried to make an assessment about what the patient's risk might be, where all the disease is involved, then we often come to the point where we're trying to make an assessment about the best initial treatment course. And I think about this in three buckets. So I mentioned already that a select number of patients, somewhere between maybe 20 or 25% of patients, may have a form of mantle cell lymphoma that behaves indolently. And in those situations, patients who have a low KI-67, a low burden of disease um, in their staging, those patients may be observed initially. And this is important because we know that many of our treatments for mantle cell lymphoma are not going to cure patients of that disease. And so if we can't cure a patient with the disease, but they're not otherwise having symptoms related to that disease, then I think it's important for us to preserve the patient's quality of life and try to provide as much uh, freedom from, from toxicities of treatment as is possible. So for select patients, again, observation is an initial um, approach that has been um, studied. The second bucket I think about are patients who are what I will call young and fit. 
and I think it is important to try to define what we think about as young. Uh, young doesn't always refer just to a chronologic age, but maybe more a biologic age. But generally speaking, when we're talking about treating patients who are young and fit, we're thinking mostly about patients who may be less than 65 years of age, who don't have a lot of other medical problems, um, who may be able to tolerate an intensive approach to treatment. And the idea here is that as a first initial uh, treatment, we recognize that we have the opportunity to provide the longest possible disease remission. And for patients who are otherwise well enough to undergo intensive treatments, intensive treatment approaches have the opportunity to provide prolonged remissions, sometimes measured as long as six, seven, eight, or maybe even more years. We know that, that the minority of patients who are treated with mantle cell lymphoma will be cured of the disease, meaning that it's quite uncommon that patients would require one initial treatment or one initial treatment course and then never require retreatment again. So we, when we think about the first treatment, we want to try to put forth the kind of treatment that can provide the, the longest time in remission for patients with the least possible toxicities. And so again, intensive treatment approaches make sense in young patients who have few other medical problems where we're trying to provide the longest remission. I'll detail those approaches um, uh, shortly. The last general bucket of, of, of patients I might think about are patients who are what we call older or less fit. So these may be patients where applying very intensive treatment uh, courses may provide a lot of toxicities, may carry a lot of harms. This may be due to the fact that patients have other medical problems that they're also managing. And in that situation, often we're thinking about, again, trying to find the right balance between providing the longest possible uh, period of disease control uh, versus the toxicities. And in that bucket, often we're thinking about more moderate intensity treatments that include things like immunotherapy and chemotherapy. So next, I will talk about specifically the approaches to first-line treatment. So for the young and fit patients, what I will say is that we still don't know what the optimal initial treatment is, but we do have some ideas about what that first treatment approach for young and fit patients might be to provide them the longest possible remission. And that approach is commonly an intensive chemotherapy and immunotherapy induction phase using regimens that incorporate often citerabine-containing chemotherapy, followed by autologous stem cell transplant, and more recently, evidence to support the use of maintenance immunotherapy, such as rituximab, after transplant. And the exact chemotherapy regimen we use for that intensive treatment in the induction phase is still unknown what the optimal chemotherapy regimen is. The variety of chemotherapy regimens that are described have never been compared in head-to-head -head clinical trials. But what we can glean from large clinical trials, both in North America and in Europe, is that the incorporation of cytarabine chemotherapy into anthracycline-containing regimens with rituximab seems to provide a good platform for initial induction. The goal of that induction is to try to reduce the burden of disease as much as possible, hopefully putting patients uh, into complete remissions, and then to consolidate that remission with a procedure referred to as an autologous stem cell transplant, which really entails high-dose chemotherapy 
followed by a rescue from the side effects of that high-dose chemotherapy by reinsertion of the patient's um, previously collected uh, stem cells from the bone marrow. Those kinds of approaches have been shown in a number of studies to produce prolonged remissions in patients, sometimes as long as seven to 10 years for about half of the patients who go through those kinds of treatment regimens. But again, there are associated with a number of toxicities, both early toxicities during treatment and late toxicities, and so we have to be very thoughtful about selection of the right patient for that kind of treatment approach. A lot of those toxicities will entail an increased risk of infection in the short term, suppression of blood counts and requirement of transfusion, and can importantly include organ toxicities, for example, damage to the liver, the heart, or the kidneys. So again, young patients without existing damage in those organ systems tend to be more appropriate candidates for that kind of approach. In terms of late toxicities, we do find that small numbers of patients who have gone through treatment programs, including intensive chemotherapy and a transplant, may have an increased risk of developing second blood cancers later in life, most specifically a form of blood cancer called acute myeloid leukemia. So we want to be thoughtful again about that intensive treatment approach. I'll next talk more about the approach in older uh, or less fit patients. And here, we're thinking that patients may have a higher risk of toxicity of intensive approach, so we're looking to provide a better balance between the disease control that's offered with that very first treatment and the short-term and long-term toxicities. In this category, we have a number of different chemotherapy plus immunotherapy uh, combinations that are have been used. I think the most common one used in North America today probably is bendamustine plus rituximab. This, uh, this treatment was studied head-to-head -head with an older treatment regimen called RCHOP chemotherapy and uh, a North American study as well as a European study. And in both studies seemed to suggest that the time that patients um, would go after first treatment without evidence of disease progression or death uh, of any cause was longer in patients treated with bendamustine and rituximab compared to the RCHOP chemotherapy. And importantly, the types of toxicity seen were quite different, with overall less blood toxicities uh, and infectious episodes in patients treated with bendamustine and rituximab. And so I think for many patients who fit into the older or less fit category, bendamustine and rituximab is a very common initial treatment approach. Of course, there are others that have been studied, including regimens that may be more commonly used in Europe, including a regimen called VR-CAP, which substitutes the vincristine in the RCHOP regimen I previously referenced with a medication called bortezomib. And that regimen has been studied in comparison to the RCHOP and appears to have some uh, favorable uh, benefits compared to RCHOP as well. And then more recently, in a small phase two study, there was our first chemo-free regimen for initial treatment, lenalidomide, which is an immunomodulatory medicine, uh, which has a variety of different actions on mantle cell and foam cells, and rituximab, demonstrating, again, very, very good durable responses after initial treatment. The last portion of this first-line uh, treatment that I will mention 
that, that can apply both to young and fit patients and older patients is the role of maintenance rituximab. So after initial therapy, we recognize from a number of studies that have been published that continuing treatment with rituximab, which is an anti-CD20 antibody, that's an antibody that to a protein specifically found on B cells, uh, can actually prolong the time in remission for some patients. In a recent study that was published uh, in 2017 in the New England Journal of Medicine from French lymphoma group, the addition of maintenance rituximab to an intensive treatment approach that included induction chemotherapy and a transplant provided not only a, a benefit in terms of um, freedom from disease progression, but also appeared to provide a benefit in overall survival. And in older patients, rituximab maintenance has been studied more commonly after the use of RCHOP chemotherapy and, again, may prolong the period of remission that patients are in. So, in, so to summarize, first-line treatment options uh, for patients with mantle cell lymphoma so often reflects the biology of the disease as well as the biology of the patient. For select patients with a more indolent behaving mantle cell lymphoma, an initial period of observation may be appropriate. For younger or fitter patients, intensive treatment approaches including cytarabine-containing chemotherapy, followed by autologous stem cell transplant and maintenance rituximab. And for older patients, combinations of chemo and immunotherapy such as bendamustine and rituximab, RCHOP chemotherapy, VRCAP, or as we learn more about our chemo-free options, potentially lenalidomide and rituximab. So the last portion of my talk that I will touch on is communicating with providers about emerging treatment options. And what I might what might have stood out to you is I mentioned that many of our choices about first-line treatment are informed by important clinical trials that are done in mantle cell lymphoma. It is a disease where it can be challenging to do clinical trials because it is a less common type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But I think it's always important for patients to ask their providers if there are appropriate clinical trials for their very first treatment that may be an option for them, because this contributes greatly to the knowledge about how to best treat this disease, helps us to develop new treatments that potentially may improve uh, responses to treatment and hopefully reduce toxicities. And I think when I think about that communication um, in the first-line setting, I think it is always important to ask what clinical trial options may be available that are incorporating new treatment agents, many that are developed in the relapsed or refractory setting that I think Dr. Haberman will talk to you about shortly, but are trying to incorporate these medicines that are known to have activity in mantle cell lymphoma earlier and up front to hopefully improve the outcomes for patients. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Patel. That was really excellent, really very comprehensive, and really, um, really set the wonderful stage for the program today, so lots of information. And I do re want to remind everyone that they will have time for questions, so do prepare your questions so you'll be able to ask your questions toward the end of the program. Our next speaker is Dr. Thomas Haberman. Dr. Haberman is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic, College of Medicine, and Dr. Haberman is going to address treatment options for relapsed refractory disease, the role of clinical trials, and quality of life concerns. It's now my great pleasure to turn over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haberman. Thank you very much, Dr. Mester. It's really a privilege to be on this phone call with you, your team, Dr. Krish Patel, Sarah Kelly, and the 487 phone lines with broad international representation. I'd first like to just talk a little bit about the role of clinical trials and make four points. 
The first is, this is how we make a difference. This is how we improve outcomes in the incorporation of different drugs with different mechanisms of action. Secondly, these can be sponsored either by industry or by government, and now we are really into the scene of international trials, uh, which really provide opportunities, especially for patients with mantle cell lymphoma. Thirdly, these are very regulated, regulated, very audited, and I don't believe there are major safety issues uh, nationally or internationally at this point in time. Lastly, I've been on papers of 21 different drugs in my career, including rituximab, lenalidomide, and ibrutinib, which have gone on to uh, achieve FDA approval in different histologic subtypes. We presented a paper on the participation in clinical trials in relapsed lymphoma from the Mayo Clinic Lymphoma Database. And of these over 600 patients, there were 156 mantle cell patients, and 41% of those went on clinical trials. Of interest, and in a fascinating way, the median overall survival was improved on patients who went on studies versus those that didn't. And I think this provides evidence to the importance. To go on to the different treatment options, there are a remarkable number of options. In the, over the previous 10 years, there have been four drugs FDA approved, now a fifth, uh, including abrutinib, lenalidomide. Uh, uh, then we've talked about bendamustine rituximab that can be used in the relapsed uh, setting, uh, bortezomab, uh, venetoclax, uh, CAR T-cells are now coming along, and then there's the role of stem cell transplantation, either allogeneic or autologous transplant. One of the earlier drugs approved was bortezomab, and about a third of patients have a good response to that drug, and we've been incorporating that drug with other drugs such as lenalidomide. The second drug that came along was initially published in a paper in 2009, of which I was involved in as the first author, and that was the initial observation. And then in the larger series, uh, about a third of patients had a good response to this. And then, as Dr. Patel pointed out, uh, uh, lenalidomide rituximab being combined together provides some really remarkable and surprising uh, responses in previously untreated patients, but is also a very effective approach in patients with relapsed refractory disease. We've looked at other uh, drugs, such as everolimus. It's not FDA-approved, but there were interesting response rates and demonstrate, again, that opportunities for clinical trials, uh, if you have them, should really be undertaken. The, we can use other regimens, such as bendamustine rituximab, and very high response rates, over 80%, when that was initially presented in patients with relapsed refractory disease. The drug that came along that uh, changed the world in mantle cell lymphoma and relapsed refractory disease was ibrutinib. And that data was just uh, followed up with a median of 3.5 years uh, in an international pooled analysis of uh, 370 patients. And essentially, 70% of patients respond. Complete remission rates are over 25%. There is there are new risks of new drugs, and the one that came along in this one included two of them. One was hemorrhage, and the other is atrial fibrillation. There's a new drug that has followed after that, a calibrutinib, a drug which 
uh, is a more specific ibrutinib, of which I won't review the issues, but the overall response rates were somewhat higher, as were the complete remission rates, and initially the toxicities of these are also less. In the search for other drugs, there's uh, palpociclobib, uh, which is undergoing trials, especially on the East Coast. CAR T-cells are beginning to be incorporated. There is not a lot of data on it, but now that we have third-generation CAR T-cells uh, approaches, which were just approved uh, by the Food and Drug Administration for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, initially the uh, group out at Penn uh, reported that that the uh, uh, overall uh, response rates were in about uh, a, a good response rates in over half of the patients. Allogeneic transplant, uh, the problem which uh, of which is uh, uh, early mortality rate because of uh, complications, uh, has been reported in a long-term follow-up from MD Anderson Group, and. At, at, at uh, five years over, about half the patients didn't relapse, and so that can be an option. Interestingly, we've, uh, we and others in different publications have talked about the role of potentially uh, taking spleens out in patients, and in our own experience, that can be effective, uh, and although not curative, uh, it can uh, help the outcomes in patients. Just appearing last week in the New England Journal of Medicine in the March 29th issue was the combination of abrutinib with venetoclax. And in this study, they reported that the complete remission rate was 42% at 16 weeks, and that really is much higher than has been reported before. And they predicted from their historical uh, outcomes uh, in, in Australia that this would be 9%. And so this will be potentially another approach. So lastly, what about quality of life? Uh, interestingly, quality of life is not well understood, is, is un well understood as we should think. We report toxicities, but we don't report long-term toxicities very well. There will be a commission coming out in, hematology, in Lancet Hematology in, in 2018 uh, addressing this whole issue with uh, eight different papers, and I think this will create interest there. And it wasn't initially uh, reported that atrial fibrillation or bleeding would be a major issue with ibrutinib, so this is really incredibly important. But I think when we really talk about quality of life, uh, what we're really interested in is what's going on like three years later. And so we've been undertaking this in our uh, molecular epidemiology research project, which is in our SPORE grant, and we reported at ASH this year the American Society of Hematology meeting in December of 2018 in looking at a, at a, a thousand patients with uh, uh, indolent lymphoma that when we looked at different funk aspects, uh, including emotional well-being, social and family well-being, and overall quality of life, it was rather intriguing that the overall quality of life was stable, and so which really suggests a psychosocial adaptation, which I don't think we need to be as concerned about. But what was really fascinating was that the emotional well-being was increased and improved, whereas social and family well-being uh, had decreased, and we don't really begin to understand this. 
the, the other abstract, and I think the last point I want to make before I conclude is we looked at the level of physical activity before and after lymphoma, looking at the overall and then the lymphoma-specific survival. And we looked at uh, uh, 3, 000, over 3,000 cases, and mantle cell represented about 5%. But what we found that was really interesting is that patients with a higher level of usual physical activity during their adult life have a significantly better overall survival and lymphoma-specific survival after the lymphoma diagnosis. And that if you had, and that patients who were three-year survivors had, with higher physical activity, had an improved overall survival. And so I've been trying to talk to patients about this for the last 30 years, encouraging them to be very physically active. But I think we're now really finding evidence to suggest that this really is important. And so these are the thoughts I leave you with, and we'll have an open uh, question and answer period, which we'll be happy to answer other questions. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hoffman. That was really outstanding and, again, just wonderful um, topics for you addressed. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, and um, lots, of, lots of wonderful information. And our last speaker is Ms. Sarah Kelly. Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker. She's clinical supervisor here at Cancer Care, and Ms. Kelly is going to go over with you Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. And she's going to do that because we recognize that there are these other issues that you're all dealing with as well. And it would be helpful to know some of the resources and the support you can get from Cancer Care. So I'm going to now turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And I'd like to thank everyone on the call. I agree that we've gotten some really good information today. So uh, we've been talking today about mantle cell and managing your quality of life and your care, and I'd like to talk about the importance of creating a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be a part of your network. So a little bit about us. Uh, we're a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We do that face-to-face -face in the New York area and over the phone nationally. We have support groups, which we also provide face-to-face -face in New York and over the phone nationally, as well as online, both nationally and internationally. We have education programs like the one we're on today. We also provide practical help, so assistance navigating the healthcare system, uh, some limited assistance going through this. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers. And as I said uh, before, they're completely free of charge. Oncology social workers really are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, really how it affects the whole support network. We're also trained to help patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease. So financial demands, uh, physical changes, social adjustment, and then the psychological impact in care. It's adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in all the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process. And I actually consider it to be a part of treatment. As you know, cancer affects the whole person, so it affects the person and also their supports. Um, asking for help, whether you're a patient or a caregiver by joining a support group or contacting a social worker for counseling is actually a strength. You know, I really want to stress that you don't have to do this alone. You don't have to walk the path alone. 
in joining a support group, uh, you can connect with others who are going through a similar situation or experiencing similar issues. With the individual counseling, you really have a space that's yours um, to voice any of the concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier as they come up. And these connections help. I think they help lessen the isolation um, that people uh, with cancer and their loved ones experience. And I also think it helps you feel better emotionally, and that can help you better deal um, with diagnosis and with treatment. So at this time, I'm just going to talk briefly about the groups that we have available. We have an online support group um, for anyone who is diagnosed with a blood cancer. In terms of our online support group program, we also have a number of caregiver groups um, that are available for family and friends and supports. In addition to that, we have a patient support group face-to-face -face in the New York area. We also have patient support groups on the phone, as well as caregiver support groups face-to-face uh, -face in New York and also on the phone. So know that those services are available to you. Um, if you're interested in any of our services and have questions, please call us on our Hope Line, and that's 1-800-813-HOPE or 1-800-813-4673. I also encourage you to visit our website, which is www.cancercare.org. And our website is really comprehensive. You know, you'll find a lot of information, not only on our support services, um, but on all of the different programs we have, as well as on your diagnosis and treatment and just ways of coping as you go through this. We learned a lot from today's program. It's a lot of information to digest uh, and really get your arms around. Know that we're here to help you understand what it means for you uh, and for your loved ones. And if you have any questions about any of our services, don't hesitate to contact us. And then lastly, I just want to say again um, that you're not alone. So please remember that our services are here to help you. Thanks so much for your attention and the opportunity to talk today. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Clark. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful resource for everybody to contact Cancer Care. Some of you have already, but may, if you haven't, um, it's a great resource for all of you to um, access. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Ayala to bring all of our speakers on board and to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. Some of you are already queuing up, but I want to be sure everybody knows how to do that and so we can have questions from everybody. So Ayala, and I also will just say that if we don't get your question, I will give you instructions at the end of how to get your questions answered. But let's see how many we can take right now. Ayala? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one. And we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, I'm going to give this question to start with to Dr. Haberman. Um, is there a hereditary factor or is it a DNA mutation? It, it, we've been very interested in looking for hereditary factors in mantle cell lymphoma and in other lymphomas and doing a lot of genetic work. And the long and short answer of it is is uh, we're not finding some of the signals we, we, we thought we would find. We know that if we look at all lymphoma patients broadly, that 7% of patients have a, have a positive family history and first-degree relatives. But this is not like a, uh, a Down syndrome type situation or others with very strong uh, in, in influence. And so at this point in time, we think it's more some hit to the genetic, back to the gene background. 
but we don't really understand what those hits are. Uh, but we're doing a tremendous amount of work in our own group with Dr. Jim Searhan, who has uh, just led a premier, he was Susan Slager, effort to try to look for the, these kinds of things, SNP, single nucleotide polymorphisms and other uh, defects. Uh, so that research is ongoing. And, and Dr. Patel, do you wish to add anything to that? Or? No, I, I don't think I have anything okay. to add. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. Good question. Wonderful answer. Okay. And we have another question from our online participants. Um, this question is um, for Dr. Um, Patel. Are there any clinical trials available for confirmed indolent um, mantle cell um, patients? Yeah, so um, I mentioned clinical trials, and, and there are um, a number of trials that are ongoing uh, looking at um, improving treatment options for patients that are either less fit or perhaps their disease is behaving more indolently but does need treatment. And, and those often incorporate uh, a number of the medicines that um, that were previously mentioned, like either a calibrutinib or ibrutinib or lenalidomide in the frontline uh, setting, usually with an anti-CD20 antibody like rituximab. So there are a number of those those kinds of trials that are ongoing uh, to try to improve the treatment, both for patients that, that may not require intensive treatment because of their disease biology, but may also not be candidates for that kind of treatment due to their, their uh, um, age or comorbid illnesses. Excellent. And Dr. Haberman, do you want to add anything to that? Or? No, I think that's that, that's okay. well stated. Okay. I think uh, as part of all of this, it depends upon what the eligibility criteria are to this very specific clinical trial. And in certain ways, we really don't have a wonderful definition of indolent mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, the only real genuine prognostic factor has been the KI-67 level with a cutoff of 30%. But after that, to find a very good predictive model to say that you be one of that about 30% of patients who can have an indolent course, I don't think we can predict in 2018. Well, thank you. And um, we have um, one, a telephone question, I believe, Ayala? Yes, we have a question from Vicki F. Your line is now open. Uh, yeah, hi, actually, this is David. Um, I had an autologous stem cell transplant uh, uh, last October, and I'm now, you know, cancer-free and feeling back to normal. Um, but if it, if and when it comes back um, and the immunotherapy treatments that are available, uh, what's the potential outcome that I, Should I expect that the future immunotherapy would, again, put me into remission or not? That's a great question. Um, um, Dr. Haberman, could you address that question? I'd be happy to address that. I think that we can predict that, that you will go back into remission. Uh, there, now, Before the new drugs came along and our different approaches, the median survival in this disease was three years. And now we're, I have patients out over 15 years who have had multiple relapses. And one patient go on four different clinical trials. The, the drugs will last for three to four years, and then patients get other other treatments. At the present time, at least in the United States, the standard of care, and, and in different parts of the world, the standard of care, once you relapse after an auto stem cell transplant that's used up front, would be probably to move to either a brutinib or, an, or a calibrutinib type approach. And then after that, there are different drugs or different combinations. 
that would be off study. Uh, on study, there are just all kinds of different opportunities internationally, which are just too complicated to go through in a brief couple sentences. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Patel, do you wish to add anything? Or do? Yeah, I, I would just, uh, again, emphasize that um, there also is an important role for clinical trials there. I think, as, as Dr. Haberman has pointed out, that is how we learn to improve upon our, our treatment paradigms. And, um, you know, I think in, in many centers we are um, lucky for appropriate patients to be able to offer those kinds of clinical trials that, that maybe even improve upon what are, I think, very good uh, standard treatment options like a calibertinib or ibertinib. But, uh, again, to emphasize that um, for certain patients, um, clinical trials in that situation may also uh, offer, um, you know, novel approaches and to help us to understand the, the disease and the outcomes better. I think, as I tried to point out uh, in our previous drugs, embortizumab, lenalidomide, we were looking at very good response rates in about a third of patients. Now it's over two-thirds of patients with a calibrutinib and a brutinib. And so it's things the things are changing, and the duration of those are, is, is longer than we had with previous drugs. So it's really been an exciting last decade and a half. Excellent. Wow. This is amazing, and, and of course, this is as of this point in time. So, I guess in all the years future, there'll be all all the more treatments that keep getting developed. Is what I'm, I keep hearing. It sounds like. Um, and we have another question from one of our participants, um, and I'm going to uh, ask Dr. Patel if he would address this question: How um, can mantle cell lymphoma involve a gastrointestinal tract? Yeah. So. Um you know, interestingly, the the, the GI tract has um, areas of uh, immune tissue, um, as you might imagine, as your, you know, it's one of the surfaces in your body that comes in contact with things in the outside world. So the gut actually has a pretty well developed uh, immunologic system of its own, and it's in those areas, in specific parts of the um, the small bowel, um, where we can sometimes find. Um, evidence of mantle cell lymphoma, that can look like different things. Sometimes it can present as a mass in the intestine. Sometimes it can present as polyps. Sometimes it may be uh, much less obvious than that and, and can just be um, uh, evidence of thickening or inflammation. But it's uh, you know felt or at least thought that these areas of normal immune tissue that exist in the walls of the intestine are places where uh, mantle cell lymphoma can also arise. And, and that is less common but true of other non-Hodgkin's lymphomas as well. There's there's data that's very fascinating. We've been looking at this question actually over the last two to three months. Um, the MD Anderson group uh, in their review, Michael Wang, uh, suggested that that involvement of the GI tract in mantle cell lymphoma can be present in over 90% of patients. And it used to be said everyone needs a colonoscopy at least to look. Now that's not recommended at all. Uh, I've seen patients who have just the only disease are small polyps of the, of the uh, GI tract, and that's not necessarily a, an indication for treatment, and the, that group falls into the indolent uh, mantle cell patients but it's extremely common, and it's a really different thing than in other uh, lymphomas. Excellent. Well, this is really interesting. These are great questions and, and great, great people to address them, so thank you. Um, 
we have another online question um, and uh, for Dr. Haberman. Um, is there a registry listing of MCL patients so research can be done to try to figure out where if the source of MCL is? Also, for a 72-year-old with 70 to 80% bone marrow involvement that's done four BNR treatments and has had a complete response to it via PET scan and now has low um, white blood cell count levels, so not yet going further for f number five and six, should he just go to rituximab every two months? One question, I can repeat it if you wish. So, no, I was taking and, notes. And, so uh, the okay. first aspect of the question was a registry. There is not a registry. We've been putting together uh, data from our um, molecular epidemiology research program, and we collaborate with people nationally and internationally, and that's where that is. Uh, number two, a stem cell for mantle cell. We're looking for the stem cell for all lymphomas, and we're not we're not there yet. Number three, if you've received uh, four cycles of bendamustine rituximab um, and you've had a really good response, um, then I think in patients over the age of 60 who are treated in that fashion that the standard of care should be going on to maintenance rituximab. And I think internationally that's the flavor when I'm at different meetings. The only caution here is why the low white blood cell count in this particular example and uh, rituximab can ca also cause low white blood cell count. So it's, the question is, was it the bendamustine or was it the rituximab? And depending on how low it is and so forth, that can uh, m make me hold back initially in instituting maintenance rituximab, uh, 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 but it depends upon the, the, white, the absolute neutrophil count. Okay, excellent. Um, and Dr. Patel, do you wish to add anything? Or? No, I, th I think Dr. Dr. Hoggerman yeah. covered it nicely there. Okay. And then um, a question for um, Dr. Patel. Um, should mental cell lymphoma patients receive shingles or pneumonia vaccines if aged 60 to 62 ranges? Yeah, so I think that's an important question for for a number of our patients who undergo um, immunosuppressive treatments. And, you know, largely I think that the point I always have to, to wrestle with is that patients who are receiving ritux rituximab-based treatments may not necessarily have the kinds of responses to vaccination or the durable responses to vaccination because that rituximab depletes the, the type of immune cell that largely uh, helps to, to develop an immune response. I think that uh, generally, in my own practice, and I think uh, as is advised by other groups, we try to avoid the use of live virus vaccines in patients who are undergoing intensive treatments. Um, the safety of that kind of vaccination is not well determined and has the potential to cause an actual infection in patients. But generally speaking, uh, either uh, killed or, or um, protein or peptide-based vaccines don't appear to cause harm in patients who are undergoing immunosuppressive treatment, but how effective they are in patients who are receiving treatments like rituximab is unknown. This is an interesting, uh, complicated question, but I pushed the question at the, at the NCCN guideline committee meeting two years ago, and the consensus at that time of lymphoma leaders, that's who was sitting around the table, was that we would not routinely recommend 
uh, immunization. It just hasn't been studied, and it hasn't been studied well in patients on any kind of chemo regimens, really. But then when the inactivated uh, vaccine came out last year and was FDA-approved in the United States, I don't know where it is in other countries internationally, the recommendations of the NCCN Guideline Committee are that patients should get the vaccine. And, and to clarify, Dr. Haberman, I believe you're, you're referring to the Shingrix shingles vaccine. Shingrix, that yes. Yeah. yeah, the inactivated, yeah. Oh, excellent. This is such a good question. It comes up in a lot of the programs that we do, and I think it's super important probably asking really good questions here. Um, there is another question here. Um, uh, so I'm going to give this question to Dr. Haberman. How would a mantle cell diagnosis with a TP53 mutation but under 30% KI-67 affect your initial treatment recommendation? Uh, so one, that's, this is a wonderful question. Um, at, in 2018, and I'll be interested in Dr. Patel's answer to this at his institution, I think it's fair to say in 2018 we're not quite what, sure what to do. Um, I think that I would, I don't know the age of the patient, but I think I would approach this uh, aggressively. Uh, uh, whether a more aggressive approach under 60 and, and then the over 60 reg regimens. Uh, 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 but uh, to say that we have a treatment that we know uh, that we should be utilizing for the TP53 mutations in mantle cell lymphoma, I'm not sure we're there in 2018. Yeah, and I, I would agree completely. I think... Um this is this is always a challenge because I think what what the question points out is um, two factors that that seem to be um, in in some opposition with one another a low proliferative index but a mutation that um, has been shown in a variety of lymphomas and also in mantle cell to be potentially a marker of a more aggressive disease um, I think again this this is an area where um, there's there's a lot of uncertainty, and I agree completely. I don't think we know what to do with these patients, but these are patients, uh, again, where um, participation on clinical trials provides a lot uh, of insight or, or has the potential to provide more insight in how to manage these. And, and certainly one of the areas in uh, trials that we participate in in our institution is to do more prospective um, molecular and genetic characterization of patients uh, who have... Uh, um, available tumor samples to do this so we can learn, do these these markers tell us something different about their disease, and, and more importantly, do they help us understand what treatments patients should get, uh, or are they simply markers of, of a prognosis rather than markers that can be used in a predictive fashion? Excellent. Well, these are great questions, and this may very well be our last question, um, um, and I'm going to give it to Dr. Patel. Um, it's been almost four years since my initial diagnosis for MCL, and I'm currently on a maximum dosage of ibrutinib daily. My question, understanding there is a high percentage of refraction for this disease, what is the expectation for how long ibrutinib is successful as a treatment, and what current options are there if I stop responding? If you could address this, Dr. Patel, in a general way. And yeah, so I, I think I, I got most of the question, but I think the main crux of the question is what kind of response um, 
might we expect from uh, patients with relapsed mantle cell lymphoma who are on ibrutinib? Um, you know, I think that question um, in some ways is still an ongoing question. So um, the studies that have led to the development of, uh, or rather the approval of ibrutinib, um, you know, there are still patients who have, um, who are responding to the drug who are on the initial uh, studies of the ibrutinib. So um, I think, you know, in the short term, I can tell you that question's ongoing. What we see um, from those trials is that 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 duration of response can be quite prolonged. Um, uh, Dr. Haberman may may know this better than I, but at least from some of the reports that I've seen, can be got, uh, seen up to uh, three or four years. Um, beyond that, so when the disease progresses, uh, I will point out something that um, has been published on and is important, is we do know that when patients, some patients with mantle cell lymphoma progress on ibrutinib, they can have quite rapid progression. And so in that situation, it's it's very important to closely monitor those patients and prepare for their next therapies because some patients can have quite uh, an aggressive uh, progression as they're on the ibrutinib. And, and typically our practice here is until we have that next treatment strategy lined up and the patient goes on to the study, we may actually keep the patient on the ibrutinib because while the disease may be progressing, sometimes it is actually um, holding some of the clones of the, the cancer at bay and to take the drug off completely can sometimes result in very, very rapid progression of disease. In that situation, in our uh, institution, we typically think again about appropriate clinical trials that may incorporate things like immunotherapy, may incorporate treatments um, that include uh, venetoclax in combination with other medications, um, uh, because I do think that the patients who progress on ibrutinib do seem to, to mark a, a higher risk uh, patient population, and again, a population where the disease can progress quite rapidly. So just to add to that, of the 370 patients in the pooled analysis presented at ASH in abstract 151, if you were in a complete remission, the median progression-free survival was 46 months versus partial remission of, of uh, four, 14 months, and the median overall survival was not reached if in complete remission versus partial remission of about 26 months. And so it really depends upon whether you're in a complete remission or not. Then that's the only answer out there. This is the pooled data of, of their different trials, uh, the SPAC, the RAY, the POIC-1104, and the CAN-3001 trials. Um, in, as far as progressing on abrutinib, there was a meta-analysis that looked at, at, at things, and then there were 205 responses with other treatment regimens. In another uh, meta-analysis, about 50% of patients responded, but it was of shorter duration than the previous treatments. And so I think that's kind of the actual data that's, that's out there in 2018 for this question. So there's, it, it, essentially, we don't have good long-term data yet. Well, this is, I think this has been a phenomenal call. These have been extraordinary questions and, and extraordinary um, speakers to address them. Um, I want to thank all of our speakers. I want to thank all of you who have been listening and all of you who have asked actually, um, such great questions that allowed our speakers to actually further elaborate on, um, on this uh, whole topic. Um, I do want to remind all of you that I know there are more questions in queue, so let me just um, kind of let you know how you get your questions answered if you didn't get your question, if you didn't have a chance to ask your question yet. Or if you think of a question in a couple of days or weeks, 
First of all, your healthcare team, of course, they know everything about you, so they're a very good source to get your questions answered. But we also do recommend that you consider, um, of course, um, I know many of you like to consider other places to get questions answered. So you certainly can contact the National Cancer Institute, 1-800-422-6237, and you'll get information about all the resources we, we give you now um, in the um, evaluation that you are going to be getting at the end of the program. Um, in addition, um, they do have a website, www.cancer.gov, and that, what's nice about that website is it has a live chat feature, and you can, so that's good for people both in the U.S. but internationally as well, and you can post your question, and they will give you answers to that as well. I do also want to put a plug in for the Lymphoma Research Foundation. They have actually a wonderful resource um, for you to contact as well. They have a, um, a, a call center as well as a um, a website to visit, and um, they are really available all the time. They're um, uh, um, so they're a great research resource for all of you. Their website is www.lymphoma.org, and their call center is one eight hundred five hundred nine nine seven six. And again, I'll, you're going to get all that information in the materials you would get from us. So there are places to go to, and these are very credible places. I also like to always mention the American Cancer Society because they have a 365-day-a-year, um, 24-hour-a-day um, call center um, that you can contact, um, and they also have a very active website, www.cancer.org, and their number is 1-800-227-2345. So again, if there's a, in the middle of the night or you know, it's some unusual time at a holiday time or you have a question and you're calling your healthcare team, of course call your healthcare team first and we want to get to speak to them. But if you're really feeling really anxious and need to talk to somebody at those unusual hours and there's no one around, it's a wonderful center to utilize in general. So um, I don't want any one of you to leave this program feeling you're alone. Um, there are many resources out there for you, and we will send you again to meet with the evaluation. Many of the will highlight some of the resources that you could use and keep them at your fingertips to contact in addition to your healthcare team. And I also want to let you know that we have a bunch of programs coming up that are quite relevant to our program today. And um, uh, so I, I, you'll get those, those materials. You'll get that information in your, in your packets as well. Um, I, I just want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, you've been, again, an extraordinary group. Our speakers have been great, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.